All right, well, good morning again. It's hard to believe that uh, four weeks ago, out on the sandbar on the, uh, I guess it would have been the uh, southeast side of Wesley's Island, we started uh, the uh, Book of James, and uh, God had us there, and uh, that was the day we had the Howling Beagle. If you have ever tried to keep focus through anything and needed a challenge, it would be a Howling Beagle, and that's how things kind of started. Um, and uh, then we've had a, a had rain after that. Then we were back out on the sandbar last week with uh, wind. Now we're out on my back porch. We just never quite know where we're going to be, but we are trying to be sensitive as to where God wants us to be. And I think that's where we've all got to be, is sensitive as to where God wants us to be with everything. So from the book of James, you know, it was the brother of Jesus that thought Jesus was a lunatic, thought he was crazy, thought he was whack. And, and denied him and uh, all his claims to being the Messiah until after the resurrection when he found out that about, through a personal appearance with a risen Jesus that Jesus truly was the Messiah. And from that point on, man, it was no holds barred. From that point on, man, he was all in worshiping Jesus and trying to teach everyone else how to do it, uh, even as, so to speak, the lead pastor of the Church of Jerusalem at the time. And uh, because the Jews had been dispersed and sent all over the place, James wanted to write this book to them, the book of James, to say, man, this is what it means to be a Christian. Test your life against these things to see if you really, truly do have saving faith. He's not writing a book saying that, hey, this is what Christians should do. Hey, here's a good idea on how to act. What he is saying is this is a test. Man, take your past actions and, and put those through the paradigm. Put them through the sieve, the filter of this, what I'm writing, to see if you truly are saved. And if this does not represent your lifestyle, man, then get saved. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Quit being one foot in, one foot out. Quit living for the world and living for Him. Sell out to Christ. And this is a man talking from experience. And he tells us, he says the very first thing, to a group of people that were under intense persecution, a group of people that as soon as they got saved, they lost their Jewish heritage, they lost their Jewish families, they lost their Jewish jobs. They were already enemies to Rome. And it was getting worse and worse and worse in all of that. So he was talking to people who were really almost in a nomad situation, people that really had no one to count on to but the Lord, and they found out that was a good place to be. And so he says to these people, count it all joy each time these tough things come into your life. It's not God trying to beat you down. The devil's trying to beat you down, which is what we're going to get to today. But it's not God trying to beat you down. God's trying to make you stronger. God's setting you up to succeed. He's giving you this trial for your good and for his glory. He's giving you this trial to build your endurance so that next time you face this trial, dude, it'll be nothing. Man, it'll be nothing. It's like trying to climb 20 stairs. If one of you guys tried to jump off your couch right now and climb 20 stairs, how many of y'all would be huffing and puffing around stair 10? How many of y'all would be dead by stair 20, right? But if each day you took another stair, another stair, another step, another step, another step, and you went up, man, within probably a month or two, dude, 20 steps would be nothing. And that's what he's trying to do through every trial in our life, including the coronavirus, including a government that might be overreaching or that is overreaching, including an economic disaster that's in, in affecting the entire world. And my brothers and sister in Haiti are even feeling it worse than what they were before in Africa and so on. It's about all of these things, but in your life in particular, what it's about right now is building your endurance. And yes, there are things you need to do and ways you need to respond, but don't ever lose sight that it is about building your endurance in Him. And if it's not accomplishing that, 
If it is not accomplishing that in your life, then you're missing the point and you're focused on the wrong thing. So, man, I want to encourage you from the book of, jo of James. He says, count it all joy when you come into these different trials and temptations and tests. And by the way, he uses, we're going to see the word trial and temptation. It's the same Greek word. It can be used positively and negatively. When we're talking about the way the enemy uses it, it's a negative thing. The way you use it, when it's your fault, it's a negative thing. But when God uses it, it's a good thing that's causing you to be more like him and bring him glory. So he says, man, count it all joy. He said, man, and, and the joy is not in the trial itself, but it's in knowing what the end result is going to be. Knowing that you're going to suffer for a little while, but you're going to have success and you're going to have joy and peace and endurance. You're going to be successful after it's over if you do it God's way. And that's what we count it as joy. The end result, the product, not the process in this. And so then he goes on and says, but in case you as a human, and I built you and I know how you're wired. In case you lose that perspective, man, ask me, pray to me. That's what wisdom is. He said, ask for wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to see life from God's perspective. He said, if you ever get discouraged, you ever get down, you ever get disappointed, you ever get dissatisfied, man, you get angry, you get mad, you get impatient, you want it all changed, you want it back to normal, you want everything fixed, you want it now. Man, he says, ask him. Go to him. Say, God, show it to me from your perspective again. You don't find that junk on Facebook. You don't find it on Twitter. You don't find it on Instagram. You find it in the Word of God, prayerfully reading the Word of God, letting God speak to you, not going to the Word of God with preconceived ideas that you already know what it means. That's how some people so often read the Word of God. They go back and say, oh, I already know what that means, and boom, boom, let me use that to help me. No, it's jumping in the Word of God and letting the Word of God speak to you, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, the word that God used to speak this entire planet into existence and all the planets, let him speak to you. Don't come with any preconceived ideas. Let him minister to you in that. He says, man, come to me and ask me for wisdom. I'll give you wisdom. And I don't care how many times a day you come to me. Man, I'll, I'll give you the wisdom. I'll let you see from my perspective. But when I tell you my perspective, don't argue with me. Don't be like, the, don't be like the, the boat that's out in the sea that's getting tossed to and fro. Don't argue with me. Just take it. This is my plan. This is my world. This is my choice. I get to do what I want, God says, because he is supreme. He is almighty and he is in total control. He says, man, when I say this is what's going down, this is what's going down. And, 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 and see it from my perspective and see the good that I have in this for you, which is what we're going to talk about today. So he says, don't doubt me. Don't try to take the world's point of view. Don't try to take my point of view. Don't try to mesh them all together. Take my point of view. Live for me. Live for this audience of one. And you know how you can tell if you're living for this audience of one? Paul told us the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, I'm going to read this to you real super quick. Uh, Paul told us in Galatians chapter 5, listen to this. First, he starts off in six, verse 16 of chapter 5. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You know what that means? If you walk in the Spirit, there is no way possible to also be satisfying the desires of the flesh. You are either at any point in time living in the flesh, or you are living in the Spirit. And it doesn't matter what you label it. He gives us a very inclusive list, a list of things that you can put up against your actions to see whether you are actually walking in the, living in the spirit or walking in the flesh. 
Look what he says. He says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. They don't mesh at all. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you are wanting to do what God wants you to do. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, you keep this list next to the mirror. And I want you to look in the mirror and I want you to read this list and say, does this list describe me or does the other list describe me? And there will be no doubt. Regardless of your personal opinion, there'll be no doubt whether you are manifesting the flesh or you are walking in the spirit. Listen to what he says again, verse uh, 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and um, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, where, where man, you got this against this person, this against this, this against this system, and this against that. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Things like these, if you look in the mirror and you see strife and anger and jealousy and rivalry and dissension and, and sensuality and idolatry, where now even maybe an issue has become more important to you than God. That's what idolatry is, is when anything has gotten more important than God's plan for your life, than what you, what God wants to do in your life and the purpose of this trial that's here. He says, man, when you see that, understand, don't deceive yourself and think you are a spirit-filled believer. He said, it's time to repent. He said, God, take those desires from me. I want to walk in your spirit. Because here's what he says. He goes on in all of this, and he says, drunkenness alike. He said, these, uh, these things, I, I, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those things do such things will not, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, not if you're saved, you're going to lose your salvation. What it means is that when you're living that way, God is not your king, regardless of what t-shirt you wear and bumper sticker you have. God is not your king. You can look in the mirror and see it when your life represents those things. And it's not to condemn you. What it's there to do is warn you and say, repent, turn, go back to God and find out what God really thinks is important in any situation in your life. What really matters right now? What is God trying to accomplish? How is God getting glory and how am I becoming more like him in this? Because again, if you are not becoming more like him and he is not getting the glory, you are not walking in the spirit, you are walking in the flesh. He goes on and he says, at that point, man, you're not going to inherit the benefits of the kingdom of God and God is not your king. You're not going to inherit the benefits of being him being your king until you let him be your king on this planet. Whether that be for your life or that be momentary, that's what he's saying. He says, but this, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's singular. The fruit is love, and all of these other things are a form of love. So if you can put this next to your mirror and look at yourself in the mirror as you read it, and this truly represents your life. In the middle of a crisis, in the middle of something going on the way you don't want it to go on, then you know you are filled with the Spirit because your flesh can't accomplish these things. It's only a giant God living in a small, incapable person that can accomplish these things when the exterior circumstances are so messed up. He said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. Why? Because you're fulfilling the law. So you're either filled 
with the spirit or you're filled with the flesh at any given point in time. Since I'm not preaching on that today, I'm not going to go through the whole rest of that passage. You can go through it. But I want to challenge you to put those two lists up on your mirror. Man, put those lists up somewhere where you can see them. One here and one here. And each day look in the mirror, man, and, 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 and challenge. Look at yourself compared to these lists so you can see really where you truly are. That's what I've had to do, especially during this time where God has got me pigeonholed in some situations that would not be my preference. But if I am his slave and he is my master, dude, that's my preference. I just got to get me on board with him. And I've got to let him direct me and not my own desires, as we're going to see in Scripture later. So where we get to in James now, again, last week we learned that there's going to be there's trials. Man, if you forget the purpose of trial, ask him. He said, if you're poor, don't worry about it, man. It's awesome. God is going to lift you up. God's going to honor you by giving you everything you need to get to the trial. So when you get through, everybody says, how'd you do it? And you're going to say, God. If you're rich, he said, man, it's awesome. God's going to humble you. He's going to show you all the stuff you have is not what you need for this trial. And the only thing you need is him. So it brings us to a level playing field so that when he gets us through the trial, we can all point to God. And that should be our goal in getting through that trial is so that every moment we can point to God and say, look what God is doing. Look what almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God is doing right now. God has not surrendered any of his attributes. He is in total control of everything. So now we come to the new section in James, and it's a situation where James is saying, all right, guys, you know what? I know things are really tough, and you guys have been following God, and God isn't working things out as fast as you like him. He's maybe not working things out the way you would like him to be worked out. It's not kind of going your way, possibly. And there is a tendency as a human being to blame somebody. How many of y'all ever blame somebody for your problems? All right, let me ask you a question. How many of you have never blamed somebody for your problems? You're a liar, because I know you have. We all have. And that's how even Adam and Eve were. You remember? Remember Eve, who'd she blame? She blamed the serpent. Hey, God said, why'd you do this? Why'd you do uh, uh, The serpent. And then why? And Adam went even worse, which is what James is going to talk about. Who did he blame? He blamed God. He said, the woman you gave me, she tempted me. And from that point on, we are very good at blaming anyone but ourselves for the problems that we have. We are very good at blaming our society, blaming our culture, or our lack of culture, blaming our job, blaming our finances, blaming our skill set or lack of skill set. We are so good at blaming everyone but ourselves because we don't like to be wrong. It doesn't feel good. In fact, we know there are chemicals our brain produces that makes us feel good when we know that we're right. And we can't be right if we're wrong unless we blame somebody else. And that's why it all works out that way for people. But today, James is going to say, no, dude, when you are tempted, when you do the wrong thing, it is wholly and solely your fault. It's wholly and solely your fault, and don't you dare blame God. You don't have the right to blame anybody else on the way you acted. Well, I wouldn't have done that if that person wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done I got to tell you a story, man, real super quick, man. Terry and I, we were, uh, we were driving down US-1, and we were actually headed south down towards Jensen. We were going to the Sam's. We were shopping for some things, and, and, and we were going down there. And, uh, man, I think it was Tiffany, one of those, where there is a long left-turn lane, 
and there was only one or two people in it, but in the left lane, not the left turn lane, but the other one, there was a long string of traffic, and I was the guy behind the guy that had two car lengths in front of him that if he could have pulled up one car length, I could have gotten in the left turn lane and not missed the turn. Anybody been there before? Oh, Terry and I, because he's with the pastor, and I'm the pastor with him, and we're both working on this. We're like, oh, oh. He's like, beat your horn. I said, I don't have a horn. <laughs> and then we're trying to get, Terry's trying to reach out, get the guy's attention without being rude. We're, we're trying our best to be spirit-filled Christians in this situation, man. And Terry's like, you need a horn, man. You need a horn. I'm like, man, evidently God doesn't want, and I don't know if the guy did it on purpose. I don't know if he didn't do it on purpose, but he did not move. And everybody, the two cars that went through the left turn, they're there. And all of a sudden, the light turns green, and he putzes. And now I had to stop at the red light and wait for the next left turn. I got to say inside, I'm wrestling. I'm wrestling whether I'm full of the spirit or I'm full of the flesh. I'm wrestling in that. So is Terry. We're both looking at that. And we sort of blew it off and changed the conversation. Went on to do something else. Well, guess what? Later, we were down, I think, by Bass Pro. We were down somewhere, man. We were down more uh, up north up here. And we were in there, and now guess what? I am in that situation. I am in that situation where I kind of put myself in the wrong lane, and I pull over, and I'm halfway in one lane and halfway in the other, and I block the entire left-turning lane. And I got to tell you, when I did that, God just convicted me and said, Wow, <laughs> you know, when it's others, you want judgment. When it's you, you want mercy. And it kind of almost justified, it almost kind of made us feel successful that we didn't go all irate on that person who did that to us because I just did it to someone else. And so again, man, at any point in time, we're going to be going through tests. We're going to be going through tests. And what's important is testing on the outside, testing's coming in on the outside. We already know God's got those for our good and his glory. We know he's brought them in our life to cause us to gain endurance. But if we're not careful, those testings may become temptings on the inside if we lose God's perspective and live in our own power. In other words, there's external circumstances. There's tests that are going on. There could uh, circumstances, situations that are happening that all of a sudden, that's a test God's got, but all of a sudden it becomes a temptation on the inside to try to do what we want to do, but do it the wrong way. Maybe because we're impatient, maybe because we don't like it, maybe because we're angry. And it's never right to do the wrong thing as often as we do that. So testings on the outside may become temptings on the inside if we lose God's perspective and we live in our own power. We can't ever lose sight of God's perspective and we can't ever live out God's perspective in our own power. We've got to stay in his power and in his presence. So the first thing I want to share with you in this section that James shares with us is that God is good. God is good. You don't ever have to worry about him tempting you with the wrong thing. He's never trying to get you to do the wrong thing. A temptation and a test is like a two-sided coin. The top side is God's. That's a test. He's trying to get you to trust him. The devil is the bottom side. That's the temptation. He's always willing to do the wrong, uh, get you to do the wrong thing. He wants you to trust anybody but God. And you have the choice in this. God does the testing. The devil does the tempting. We do the trusting. You can see that in the temptations of Christ when he was drug out into the wilderness, led out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tested of the devil for 40 days. 
He had a choice of trusting anyone but God, but instead he used the word of God to trust God. So good, God is good, we're going to see, and his tests give us the opportunity to do a good thing in a good way. If you have to do a good thing in a bad way, it's not God's will. But God's giving us opportunities to do a good thing in a good way in his will. Listen to verse 13, James 1.13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. In other words, yes, we're being tested by God. We know that all through scripture. But he's using it in a negative text context. He's saying, don't ever blame this on God, that God's giving me a test that I can't handle, and it's God's fault that I'm failing. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man, but God's faithful. He'll not allow you to be tested above that you're able, but with the temptation, he will make a way to escape. The problem comes when you try to make your own way to escape, and you don't take God's way to escape, because maybe God's route's not fast enough for you. Maybe God's route isn't comfortable enough for you. Maybe God's route is too painful. I don't know. Those are just some things in my life. But God is going to make a way. And so we can't ever blame God for causing us to do wrong. That's what James is saying, in case you're ever wondering. He said, don't you be saying, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God already, we've already been told ahead of time why God's doing this. The test is there to make you more like him. It's for your good. It's for his glory. It's not for you to fail. He's setting you up to succeed. But if the flesh wins out, if your desires win out, you fail. And you know you fail when you represent that list of the flesh that I read you out of Galatians 5. You know you succeeded when you represent that list of the fruit of the Spirit. That's a great way to tell. Because our personal opinions, we have a great way of overestimating how good we are and underestimating how bad we are in situations. So God, you know what? God's fully aware of evil. God's totally in charge of everything that's going on. But I heard a great illustration, man. A great illustration. And it said God's view on evil. God can't be changed by evil. He can't be tempted by evil. God can't be affected by evil. So God is that beautiful sunbeam that is shining down on the putrid dump. Think about that. God is a beautiful sunbeam shining down on the putrid dump. Does the putrid dump change that sunbeam? No, not at all. Not at all. And in fact, God's sunbeam actually kind of helped break that down into some compost <laughs> in a slow process. But the fact is, is that God can't be changed by evil. God's not capable. In fact, God is good. He is the definition of good. So anything that comes from God, we're going to see is good. That's good. That's it, period. Anything coming out that is not good, it is your fault. Because you have rejected the ability that he has given you to do the right thing in it. So, he goes on and says, uh, the, the first part, he says, Let no one say when, I am, when I'm tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He's testing you, trying to build your endurance in this. But the second thing I want you to see in the next verse says temptations are an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. Do you get that? That's a great definition. I think it came from Warren Wearsby or somebody, but a great definition of a temptation. It is an opportunity you have to do a good thing. What you may want to accomplish may be a good thing, but it's a, a temptation is an opportunity to do that good thing in a bad way. How many of y'all ever heard the expression, the ends don't justify the means? 
But how many times do we violate that? Where no matter what, if we vi- it doesn't matter how I get there as long as I get there. That, well, and we look at something after we've already done it and we violated God's principles and we've done, we've, you know, done what God said not to do, but it turned out in our mind okay. You know, and we're like, oh, look, here's the good things. And we even put them in the praise jar and we talk about it. Here's the great things. Here's the great things. Here's when, in fact, it was not God's will at all. If you ever have to violate scripture and I'm not talking one piece, I'm talking you take the whole counsel of scripture. And if you have to violate scripture, it is not God's will. God's will will never go against God's word. And that's why we need to know the whole counsel of God. That's why when we make decisions, we need counsel from godly people. Because our lust, our mind gets set on things that we want and we can justify anything. In fact, look at this. Again, remember this definition. A temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. And it is out of God's will. James 14 and 15. Listen to this. But each person, that's every person here, every person out there, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We are tempted when we are lured and enticed by whose desire? Not God's desire. It's your desire. Now, we have God-given desires. And our God-given desires are good when they are used in the way that God wants us to use them. Hey, let me ask you a question. Is eating good? Yeah, eating is good because without eating, you die. But if you don't do it God's way and you do it your own way, if you steal to eat, if you overeat, if you undereat, whatever, if you don't do it the right way, it's the wrong thing and it's not God's will. God's got a plan. How about the ability to provide for your family? Is that a good thing? Yes, that's a good thing. It is a God-given desire. It goes all the way back to the fall. He said, your desire, you're now going to work for what you've got. There's a God-given desire. Work. That four-letter word is God's desire that he puts in us. But when we're not doing it for God, but now we're doing it for prestige, we're doing it for ourselves, or we're doing it for power, we're doing it for wrong purposes, it's wrong. So what happens is we take God-given, how about sex? Man, is sex a good desire? Absolutely, because without that desire, there would be no procreation and the planet would cease to exist. But outside of the confines of marriage, it's as dangerous as a fire outside of a fireplace, busting out, burning all over your couch. So God gives us desires. The problem is is when we take the desires God gives us and we use them for ourselves and for our own way. He says, each person is tempted. This is when you're tempted, when you are lured and you are enticed by your own desire. So your own desire is a God-given desire that now you've got your own purpose for. And boy, Proverbs tells us that we can justify anything. And some of these things, folks, we're not going to learn except through experience. Because we are so smart, no one can tell us anything. And every one of us experienced that. But look at the words he uses. We are lured and we are enticed. Those two words are talking about hunting and fishing. How many of y'all like to hunt and fish? You like to hunt and fish? I do too. I love to use artificials. I love to use artificial bait. I love to throw a jig out there and swim it back through the nose of a, of, of, of a trout or a snook. Now let me ask you, what, what's the end result once I catch that snook legal size in season? The end result is that snook is going to die. He's going to fry. He's going to grill on my grill, and he's going in my belly, right? The snook's going to die. Now, is that why the snook chases the bait? 
Do we ever look at the end result of chasing the bait? No, all we do is look at the bait and realize, whoa, this is what the bait's going to bring me right now. This is what's going to happen. Same thing with a, an animal going into a trap. Does he even think he's going in a trap? Well, yeah, and if I do, I'll get out, no problem. But right now, I want what's in that trap. So lured and enticed, no one's ever looking at the end result. All we're ever looking at is what's right in front of us right now. And the wages of sin is death. Man, don't be lured or enticed by neglecting to see the end result. So he says each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Man, you know what? There was only one time in my life where I've ever caught fish without bait on a bare hook. And I don't even know how it all happened. We were in Orlando, man. I was a construction worker. And we found a sewage pipe dumping out into a lake. And there were tons of catfish. And the only thing we could use to catch them was just a bare gold hook. We would throw that gold hook down. Bam! And as soon as, as, soon as the, 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 we put the hook down, we, they would bite. They, as soon as we put the hook down, they would bite. So they, now, obviously, we weren't going to really eat those catfish since they were feeding off of what was coming out of a sewage pipe. But my point is, why were they biting a bear hook? Why were they so foolish? And how were they fooled so easy? Because they weren't looking at the hook. They were enticed by sewage coming out of a pipe. When in the rest of the lake, God had all kinds of cool stuff for them to eat. But they hung out by the pipe and were eating sewage. I wonder how many of our lives that describes when we are in a test that we are failing. When we want to accomplish something good, we want to fulfill a natural desire God has given us, but we're not willing to wait. We don't want to do it His way. Instead, we have another way to fulfill it, which is wrong, and it's out of His will. So he goes on in this, and he says, man, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, verse 15, then desire. Now he takes it from a hunting and fishing perspective to a giving birth perspective. Instead of being born again, man, you're being born again into sin when you bite. You're born again into sin when your desire takes over. He said, when desire, this desire, this desire God gave you that you're using for the wrong reason, because you didn't line it up with the Word of God, you lined it up against everybody's opinions, you lined it up with all the people you found to support your opinion, you lined it up with your emotions, you even took Word of God out of context, little pieces to line it up to make it work, because the Bible says we'll do that. He said, this desire, when it has conceived, when it's conceived, we, all, we know life starts at conception, right? Here's proof, the desire of your sin, that life of your sin starts at conception. As soon as your desire is sold on it, you're going to find a way to make it happen. You're going to find a way to justify it. You're going to find a way to make it spiritual, if you're a spiritual person. And the Holy Spirit's going to find a way of bringing conviction eventually. But that might not come for a while. He said, when the desire is conceived, it gives birth. Man, I got a little grandbaby sitting there in that chair. Little grand, not, not, not Keone, but Alana. And how, how, how far are you right now, Ashley? 23 weeks. Uh, how many months is that? Like uh, 23 weeks, whatever. She, how many y'all got left? How many got left? I don't know. I got like four more months left. Yeah, four more months. So it, there's a gestation period for a baby, and he's using that as an illustration. He's saying this desire is going to be conceived, and then it's going to have a gestation period, and it's going to give birth to sin. 
So the consequences of sin don't happen immediately. In fact, we had a great discussion Wednesday night on the condition of this world based off of Romans chapter 13, which I'm not going to bring up here, but I encourage every one of y'all to read. And everybody was upset with the condition of this world. How did we get here? What's it so much? How did we lose this? How did this happen? How did it all? You know what? Bur sin isn't birthed immediately. What one generation tolerates, the next generation accepts. And I'm not talking about political things. I'm talking spiritual things. I'm talking it takes time for the consequences of sin to actually mature, materialize, and actually be born. And now all of a sudden when they're born, now they're starting to mature and we're wondering, how did this happen? It happened back at conception when you had a desire, a right desire, that you fulfilled the wrong way. Because you didn't line it up with the whole counsel of God. And now it gave birth. And now we're going to see what happens. And when it get conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown. When it is fully grown. So that is a whole lifelong maturing process. He said it is going to bring forth what? It's going to bring forth death. So you see, here's what happens. Here it is. I've got a desire. I've got an impulse right now. I feel like this right now. I've got to accomplish this right now. And, and, and I can line it up here with God's word, maybe here, but I've got to fix, I've got to get this. I've got to do this. And all of a sudden, <coughs> we have a desire that now we've justified and we've conceived it in sin. It's conceived because we're going to do the right thing the wrong way because it doesn't line up fully with God's word. It's going to have a gestation period where while it's growing, oh, it's healthy. Oh, my sin has a healthy heartbeat. Oh, my sin is turning around. Woo, my sin is good. No C-section for me. I'm just going to give natural birth to this sin. Because we justified it and found lots of people to help justify it. And boom, the baby comes out. Now the baby starts maturing and is part of our life. The sin. And he said the end result is going to be death. Sometimes the result of sin is immediate. Sometimes it's not. Ecclesiastes so, uh, Solomon said, because the consequences of sin don't come immediately, men continue to sin. Man, I think if we got spanked every time we did something wrong, we wouldn't do that. Sometimes. <laughs> but the fact is, God wants us to look at his word and listen to the Holy Spirit in us. And regardless of our feelings, he wants us to live by faith and do the right thing according to his word. So he goes on. And he tells us that temptation is seeing, uh, uh, let me get back here again. Temptations are an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way out of God's will. Each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And then we wonder, why did this happen? James is trying to thwart it all. What he's trying to do is create some personal accountability to say, if your life represents the manifestations of the flesh, man, repent. This is what you're giving birth to. This is what you're in the process of. Either you're in the process of the, making a plan and conceiving this thing, or you're almost to the point of death, but it's never too late to repent. Repent and do it God's way. Admit you're wrong and he is right. Go back and do it the right way. And he then tells us that we can only overcome temptation if we're born again and we're seeing life from God's perspective, walking in his power and living in his presence. Listen to James 1, verse 16 through 18. 
He said, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. You know what? That's what fish are. That's what hogs are in a hog trap. Dude, all you got to do is make a hog trap, sprinkle a bunch of corn in there. Dude, I'll tell you what. I've seen where the hog will go in there and the thing will slam down on them, the door. And they're eating it. And I've seen other hogs looking at that hog trap trying to get in that same trap. And I've seen it happen with people. Don't be deceived by the devil's reward, by, the, by, by what the devil has to offer in this. Wait on what God has to offer. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't settle for second best. So often, before God gives you the very best, you've got a lot of offers for some inferior products. But sometimes our emotions are driving us so hard that we're ready to settle for those. That's what he's meaning. Don't be deceived, my brothers. Wait on what God has for you. Do it God's way, whether you feel like it or not. We don't live by feelings. We live by faith. And that takes the Holy Spirit interpreting the entire counsel of the Word of God for us to keep us from making these mistakes. Wait on God. Look what he says. Every good gift. And every perfect gift is from above. So every test that God brings, and, and the, way this is, the way this is even written, it says every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down. That word coming down is written in a way like rain. It's continually coming down. God is continually raining down good gifts on us. Right now in this coronavirus, in this governmental overreach, in the poverty we're seeing, in all these problems, God is raining down good gifts. Are you seeing them? Are you finding them? You find what you look for. He's raining down good gifts. Don't miss what he's trying to do because he's not doing what you want him to do. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, raining down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. This word father of lights is an ancient term referring to the creator, the one who made the sun, the moon, who made all the stars. Let me ask you a question because it goes on and says there's no shadow of change. Does the sun ever lose its ability to shine? Does the sun ever lose its ability to shine? Or is the sun always shining? The answer is the sun is always shining. It's always there. It's always shining. So why do we have night? Well, you know what happens? The earth gets in the way. The earth gets in the way. So what James is saying here is that you have, if you have lost the ability to see the Father of light shining, if you've got any shadow in your life, you're in the way. The same way the earth gets in the way of the sun. Get out of the way. We're his slave. He's our master. Beg for him to accomplish his will in our lives so that we can become more like him. It's for his glory and it's for our good. So he says, every good gift, every perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation, no shadow due to change. God doesn't change. He's good and he's good all the time. Man, I remember going to, going to Africa. I remember going to Trinidad. I remember going to Jamaica, going even to Haiti. And you'd say, God is good. And what does everybody answer back with? All the time. And you say, all the time, God is good. May we never forget that. If you're missing the goodness, it's kind of like the sun that never stops shining. The earth's in the way. Maybe you're in the way. Get out of the way. He's been moving me out of the way all week long as I've been studying this. 
Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth. That means birthed us. He gave birth to us of his own will. God chose you from his own will to give birth to you by the word of truth or through the truth of the word. In other words, God chose to allow you to be born again. If you are born again, it is because it is nothing. Your nature is sinful. Your nature, you don't seek God. You only seek yourself. That's why we've got to be born again. <coughs> so when we're born again, we have a new nature that now seeks to glorify him. But while we are here on this planet, we have our flesh fighting for us, and we have our new nature fighting for us, and whichever one you feed is the one that you're going to resemble. Man, I want to encourage you, especially during these tough times, feed your spirit. Feed your spirit. Make sure the stuff you post, make sure the stuff you say, make sure the stuff you think about, make sure the things you discuss with others, make sure those things are edifying and helping each other grow spiritually. Because Lord knows we have enough things right now feeding our flesh. And if we feed our flesh, our flesh is what's going to grow. And that's what we're going to resemble. And that's the list that we're going to be living out. As opposed to the love, peace, joy, patience, goodness, gentleness. All of those. Self-control. Karen wouldn't let me forget that one. So he says, man, he said, of his own will. Not because he's, you know, you're like some prize. Ooh, I got, you know, he chose you because he loved you. He loves your potential. He loves what you're going to be when you become like him. That's why he's working and setting things up for you to become like him. Don't mess that up. Of his own will, he brought us forth. He born us by the word of truth. So the only way we know the truth is through the word of God. Everything we think, everything we feel, we have to funnel through the word of God in context to know the truth of it. And why? Look at this. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What the Jews used the first fruits when they got into the promised land, they would take the beginning of the crop, the first fruit. Now, man, we've got a bunch of pineapples growing out front right now. And dude, my wife loves these pineapples. And the pineapples are growing. And they're getting bigger. They're not quite yellow yet. But they're bigger. We're trying to find out how to get the squirrels to not get them when they're yellow. We're trying to protect them. We're looking at them. And dude, when those first pineapples come out, you know what I want to do? I want to eat them. Because I've been watching them grow. last thing I want to do is give them all away at this point. Because I like the pineapples. But according to the law of first fruits, the first batch you get... Man, you're supposed to give that batch to God. And you know what that tells God? That you know that he can provide more, and you know that the end crop is going to be better than the first crop. You're trusting him. And he says, you being born again are a first fruit. You being born again, showing everybody in this world what it looks like to live with a big, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. This is what it looks like. A first fruit of what it's going to look like when there is a new heaven and there is a new earth. When we are living in turning with him, you're supposed to be representing heaven. You and I are supposed to be representing heaven to everyone on this planet. But if we're drawn away by our own lusts, taking our own God-given desires and trying to accomplish them in the wrong way, all that comes forth is sin, and you don't need a big God living in you to do that. So the solution he tells us in all of this is, one, you got to be born again. There's nothing in natural man that would want to do it right and please God. 
There, there's no desire to please him, to seek him, to do it for him. And you have to be born again because your first birth wasn't good enough. So when you're born again, now you have all the tools necessary to overcome sin. We have to stay focused on him. We have to stay in his presence. We have to continually be looking for his perspective on every situation. Checking against our own. Checking it against our buddies. Checking it against everything. Checking it against the media. Checking it against the news. Checking it against everything. And we've got to keep his perspective by staying in his presence. And then we've got to fulfill his perspective by living in his power. But James knew that when tough people, when people were going to be put in some tough times, that sometimes they were going to grow weary in doing well. Paul knew that too. That's why Paul said, don't grow weary in doing good things. If you just hold on, you're going to reap a good crop. Don't give up. But James knew people were even going to have the tendency to blame God. Well, if God didn't put this in my life, I wouldn't have to do this. If God, and they start losing faith in God and start gaining more faith in themselves and in others. That's all Satan wants, is you to gain more faith in yourself and others. God wants you to gain more faith in others. So if you've never been born again, if today you realize, man, I have this desire. There's a desire in me that wants to unite with God. And I want God to rule my life. I want God to be in charge. I've, I've worn myself out trying to be in charge. If you have that desire, that desire is God-given. Surrender to it. Surrender everything you know about yourself to everything you know about Him. Give your life to Christ. And then once you've given your life to Christ, don't try to take it back, especially when times get tough. Know, as James said, that God is sovereign. He's in total control. And that this trial is in your life to teach you to trust him and don't fall for the enemy's ploy to trust anyone but god trust god line it up against his word and wait wait god's got a purpose and it's going to be for your good and his glory and you're going to have some endurance let's pray father thank you for this little passage of scripture and uh Father, I know there's so many ways we could look at uh, preaching it from so many different angles as far as even the whole seminar on how to avoid sin, but all the angles are pointing to the same thing, and that is, is that we have to see life from your perspective. We have to live it in your presence, and we have to accomplish it in your power. Anything short of that, we are going to fail. Father, I pray that if any of us are blaming anything on anyone right now, any problems on anything, I pray, Father, you would show us how to turn that back on ourselves. And we would repent from making wrong decisions. And we would start doing the right thing. And seeing what you want to have accomplished in this. Help us never to try to do the right thing the wrong way which is out of your will, but help us to continually try to do the right thing the right way in your will, for your glory, for our good. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name.